Greetings and welcome to DWR, Discussions on Writing and Rhetoric, a space for informal conversations around research and practice in the field at the university level, a place inclusive for curious novices, blossoming scholars, and seasoned academics to consider and share their inquiries, experiences, and passions surrounding writing and rhetoric. We are your hosts, Professors Megan Falconer and Nicholas Gardiakos with the University of Central Florida. Thank you for joining us. Now let's get this conversation started. Today we're joined by two members of UCF faculty, Dr. Blake Scott and Nathan Hollick. Dr. Scott has an array of research expertise, including rhetoric and medicine, professional and technical writing, scholarship on writing program development, design, and support of student learning. He's a founding co-editor of the scholarly journal Rhetoric of Health and Medicine, winner of the CELJ 2019 Best New Journal Award, and has published multiple book chapters and in academic journals related to writing and rhetoric. Professor Hollick is the creator of fiction, nonfiction, and comics that have been widely published in print and online, with his most recent publication, Bright Lights, Medium-Sized City, and serves as the graphic narrative editor at the Florida Review. Together, they created Strengthening Hospital Nurses' Mental Health Resilience Through a Peer Support Training Program Using Comic Testimonials, which focused on introducing comic therapy to healthcare professionals. This won the 2021 Pabst Steinmetz Foundation Arts and Innovation Award, which grants two proposals each year, combining programs in the College of Arts and Humanities with other UCF colleges. Thank you for joining us today. Thank you. Thank you. So to start out, for those who may not see the immediate connection, how do you bridge writing and rhetoric with medicine and healthcare? What is the connection for you? Well, I'll start with Kenneth Burke's famous definition of rhetoric as the use of symbolic communication to induce cooperation in other humans who by nature respond to symbols. So if we think about rhetoric expansively, we can we can imagine that kind of communication happening across various kinds of contexts, and we can imagine that communication involving language, but perhaps other media too, like visual communication, spatial communication. And what led you to have that connection personally? Was there something that interests you and and you have a a large amount of research and publication on it? What led you to that? I think um, coming of age in the HIV AIDS epidemic in the late 80s, early 90s made me curious about how I could connect what I was doing in the community with activism, with preventive education, eventually with HIV testing. I was a test counselor uh, while I was getting my PhD with what, I w- with what I wanted to do with my scholarship and in my scholarship. Was there a need or a lack or something that you found that would make that application um, you know, so important for that particular community? Yeah, so what we were seeing with both public policy, public health policy, and public health campaigns, and also preventive education at smaller in smaller contexts was the, an emphasis on particular identities as being at risk or even risky. And 
that had the potential to stigmatize certain groups. It had the potential to detract from the actual behaviors that were causing HIV and keep other people who didn't identify in those groups from recognizing their own risk. I think of medical writing as always being, um, I guess, lofty or highbrow would be the way that I think of it. And I think, I mean, we can see that in the last few years, what happens when there's a a national or global pandemic or health crisis, the um, ability to communicate what what we sh- just the ability to communicate is so um, important to, to to people. So I was just curious if um, you were also seeing you know a disconnect between uh, the medical jargon and how it was impacting communities, and if if that particular um, epidemic maybe was where we could start to see that shift towards things being more um, user friendly or you know more common language being used to make the message more deliverable or impactful. Absolutely. I think with any kind of education, drawing on community norms is is crucial. And so what we saw when activists started to get involved in developing educational programming and materials is um, an abundance of safer sex and harm reduction strategies that maybe clinical folks and epidemiological researchers didn't identify previously. So I want to ask then, how does the connection between those kinds of questions and, Nate, what you do with uh, comics and comic therapy, how do those then sort of come together? So I'm also thinking about your uh, previous project, uh, Winner from 2019, uh, which was about HIV stigma specifically, and then, you know, using... um, some of those methods to, to kind of talk about uh, what some of those situations might be uh, for different stigmas. So, Nate, I wonder if you could talk about the role of, of comics and, and, and then maybe both of you talk about how those two kind of came together. Well, the idea of comics as art therapy, um, I wish I could say, like Blake, that I've had this uh, experience with something like that that goes back decades but it's relatively new to me. Um, I don't know if it's new to Blake. Um, but a lot of the things that he and I have done together over this grant project and over our previous grant project, I think are a case study in how research projects are put together. And by that, I mean incredibly messy. I, I say that because, not not in a negative way, but I say that in a way where like, I, I'm able to talk about these things for my students in first-year writing classes as being incredibly illustrative for how research works. For Blake one day running into me in the hallway, because he deals with health health and medicine and, and health rhetorics and knowing that I draw comics and just asking me a question about it, and then a month later I'm sitting down in a coffee shop with Blake and with a colleague from nursing to talk about a, a research project that's going one way and then at the end of the conversation goes in a completely different way. And then two years later, talking about other avenues for research. And, and so none of this, though I think it's all written up very well, uh, the titles of our grant of our grants and our research projects certainly sound lofty and they sound really, really well done, well put together. 
from the start, they're coffee shop conversations, and they proceed with a sense of curiosity about something like, in the case of our first project, which was uh, about um, stigma with people living with HIV, the idea of of what we call uh, data elicitation storyboards, that was something that didn't really even have a name when we started um, our project. Though the idea had existed uh, as early as, you know, a child's workbook that'll ask you to draw something into a, a blank panel. But but Blake essentially coined that that term for for what we were working with, which which again was just just a brainstorm as we were high on espresso, you know, <laughs> and and with with the the project that that you introduced um, here uh, for this this podcast with the um, strengthening nurses well being. I forget the entire title, but you know your listeners have they have phones they can they can rewind. Um, w- with that, the idea of of Art therapy. I don't even know, you know, who first posed that idea, because uh, um, our our research team has gotten pretty large. Um, there's quite a few people that are a part of it, and I'm not sure who posed the idea, but but when whoever did uh, pose it, our our first step was to just learn more about that. And, and I think all of us on the team, none of us were experts with art therapy. Um, I draw comics and I, I read a lot of comics. So if that if that gives you expertise in something, I've got comics expertise because I read a lot of them uh, and I spend a lot of time drawing. But I, I, I'd never really uh, been too in-depth with comics being used to help somebody who's experiencing trauma, uh, to, to help them write about and draw about their experiences. So so we read, we read a lot. Um, we did a pretty lengthy, I think, uh, literature review and and the more we learned about it, the more we thought this could be applied to a program that is pre-existing at, at UCF, which we can we can talk about more in a, in a moment. So again, um, just to kind of sum all of that up, it's a messy response, but it's a messy overall process to get to where you have an actual project with real people involved, real questions that you're asking, and then um, real research tools and real w- workshops. Yeah, just a couple more examples of the serendipitous nature of these kinds of research projects. The original project came about first when I read something in USA or UCF Today about Krista Cook's research. She's an associate professor of nursing around HIV stigma, and I had previously worked on that topic. And I invited her to coffee. Um, she there talked about a research group she was part of statewide that identified provider-enacted HIV stigma, so stigma that patients experience with providers as a priority area because it was keeping patients out of care, was leading to poor health outcomes. And so we wanted to create, you know, impactful, shorter, creative training materials for providers. And at that point, you know, we were thinking videos, we were thinking variety of media, and then it struck me, like, we have this gold mine in our department named Nathan Hollick. And I knew that Nathan was an accomplished graphic novelist, mem- memoirist. He had published a number of shorter-form comics as well around issues of health and medicine, um, including, you know, the community trauma we experienced after the Pulse shooting. So we invited him, and it became quickly apparent as he was talking with us about the power of comics that this was the way we wanted to go. We, we didn't need to make videos. We didn't need to, to make 
podcast, we, we needed to make these comics. Another example was when we were planning to start collecting data from area patients about you know, how they experience stigma with providers. And you know the pandemic made recruitment and, the, and conducting the focus groups and interviews complicated. So we, we, we went on pause, and at that point, I think it was Nathan who, who came up with the idea, well, why don't we experiment with using comics as data collection tools themselves, these kind of minimal comic storyboards that, so that they could draw their experiences in interesting symbolic ways as well as tell us their experiences. And so we thought, well, why don't we test some of these data collection tools out? Because as Nathan said, this hasn't been done very often. And that's when we developed the pilot study with a subset of participants who gave us incredible feedback that we then turn around and use to make our study better when we actually did the full-fledged thing. Are you able to tell us who, um, you know, what, communities were involved in that pilot of testing in terms of participants? Are, are you able sure. to disclose that? Okay. Sure. So what we decided to do was, Krista and I both had some longstanding relationships with HIV service organizations in the area from previous work we had done. And so we worked through the patient support groups that were sponsored by these organizations because they were already patient-led um, and so we gauged their interest in helping us with this. They were very interested. Um, and we had to get creative in how we collected the data. Um, I remember one focus group where we we were meeting remotely via Zoom, but the patient group was all together in a garage, and the technology crashed, and eventually the facilitator on their end had to use an iPad to interface with our team and then translate some of what we were asking them to do with the comic storyboards and with the discussion. So we had some interesting um, encounters with gathering data around that. But most of our, most of our um, participants were people of color. Most of them were um, over 30, and most of them were already engaged in helping their peers manage life living with HIV. And then when you transitioned into working directly with healthcare providers, with nurse, it was nurses, correct? Um, how did, what, what communities locally were you gathering from in that, in that way? Well, we were already collaborating with nursing faculty in the first project. And we were, th in thinking about stigma, we began thinking about other kinds of stigma too, including the stigma around mental health that nurses and other providers were facing, especially during the COVID-19 pandemic, when they were getting it from community, they were getting it from patients. Um, they also felt um, like they weren't being supported by the institutions themselves, not enough PPE equipment. So our nursing faculty kind of let us down. That is another potential way to engage um, these vulnerable populations with art therapy, comic therapy in our case. Um, and then we had this connection to Clint Bowers, who was part of the leadership over at the Clinical Research um, Center, UCF Restores. In fact, he was a former um, chair, interim chair of the English department <laughs> before we became our own department. And he, that Clinical Research Center helps 
first first responders and they're branching into um, healthcare providers deal with trauma. He told us that they already had a um, a branch of what they were doing that focused on prevention of mental illness that was geared around help training nurses to be peer supporters for one another, to identify different levels of stress, different types of stress, to engage in better conversations around stress with their peers, and then to connect their peers with help when needed. Yeah, an interesting um, like sub-facet of the COVID-19 pandemic was um, illustrating what a an absolute drought there is in terms of mental health support. Um, you know, therapists are suddenly finding themselves, uh, you know, no one's taking new patients. There's not enough therapy. There's not enough providers of mental health support for the amount that is necessary. And I know, you know, in the beginning, it was, what can we do to show our support? Well, in a place like Manhattan, you know, where you live a little more in a congested area, or you, people are banging pots and pans every day at 5 p.m. to try to, like, cheer everybody on. But, you know, here in Orlando, we're a little more isolated. And um, in that just the way that our, our we're, the way that we function and the way that we're, we're set up. So <clears throat> I could see where for nurses in particular that are doing a lot of the heavy lifting, that some type of outlet for mental health would be so helpful and really needed and necessary. Um, so what was the what was the response from that group like? I mean, were they did they resist at all to the idea of comics or would, did they really embrace it? Were they were they, you know, um, were they overwhelmed in general and not really looking to to expend any more energy or were they really looking for that outlet? I think they're very much looking for outlets to help them process the trauma they were living through, to help them tell their story of what they experienced, and even in some cases to use art and comics in particular as advocacy tools to advocate for what they needed in the workplace, what they needed from the hospitals in which they were working. I think what we saw in looking at the response to the pandemic was a combination of we had these big organizations, professional organizations, nursing organizations, for example, that were starting these initiatives around helping nurses write about their experiences, helping nurses draw and make art about their experiences. But there was this gap with, with comics. And on the other hand, we saw individual nurses start making comics about their experiences. So we wanted to create an institutional space where they could get training around this. They could they could tell us, they could imagine for themselves, like, what do we want to do with these comics? I have a question about, uh, I want to go back to the comics as, as sort of data collection tools. Um, and, and I wanted to throw a question to Nate. Um, when you are, you know, and, and obviously you have experience of this, you know, in teaching comics as well, but... What's your approach to people, you know, when you first pitch the idea of expressing themselves or, or writing experiential, you know, types of things through comics where, you know, those authors may not have that experience with, with drawing or, you know, you know, 
panels, all, all the things that kind of go into, you know, the, the, the genre of, of comics. Like, what's your approach for, for those kind of folks? And I'm thinking, you know, imagining my own self, like being in that situation, I would be very, you know, self-conscious about my, my drawing ability or my ability to produce uh, something. What are the ways in which you, you kind of... Uh, well, yeah, you should that? have been a part of our faculty drawing club. <laughs> I should have been, uh, A yeah. couple of semesters ago, which, uh, which ended thanks to, to COVID. Um, but yeah, the, uh, I think one of my main goals when I first started to teach a, a course called Rhetoric of Comics back in 2015 was that uh, how do I sort of bridge that gap between writers and artists? Because most of the students that would be taking my course would be writers. They would be in, in our department. And we had... And I've, I've had a number of students from visual arts, students from animation that have taken my course, but I can't depend on that. I have to depend on the fact that they're going to be writers uh, first and foremost. And and a lot of them would be taking my class and, and interested in the book list and reading comics. But then on the first day, I had to I had to expect that the majority of them would freak out when I asked them to draw anything. And I don't think that you can take a course in comics without drawing something. Uh, I think that it helps you to understand the medium, um, understand what writers and artists go through when they create it, understand how it's put together in a way that you just can't get from just looking at it alone. Uh, so my, my first step really in thinking about what they would experience was that I tried to make the syllabus into a comic. And I, I drew as much of the syllabus as I could in comic form. And the same goes for my web course as I started to create that, um, as much of that as, as drawn as I could. The assignment sheets are all, they all have sort of like comic covers to them. And some of them are like process comics where I try to illustrate the steps of an assignment. Um, it's time intensive, so I can't do it for everything. But I, I try to do a lot of it in, in building the course. Um, and, and specifically in showing students that these things can be done by someone who's not primarily an artist. Um, I draw a lot of comics now, but but back then, you know, the, the early 2010s, I, I wasn't drawing as much because I wasn't teaching comics and I was just reading them and I didn't think I had much talent. And, and so I just didn't. And so I figured if I draw the syllabus and they see bad art, that will make them more more comfortable. And I still use, even though I think I've improved, I've, I've put a lot of time into my craft over the last five to seven years, eight years. Um, <laughs> I, uh, I I still use a lot of that original illustration just just to uh, create a comfort level for for students. Um, but I've I've also borrowed a lot of strategies from a um, artist and graphic novelist and, and teacher named Linda Berry who wrote a book called Syllabus about teaching comics, uh, again, to primarily writers uh, and, and, and even as young as high school students. Um, and she's up in Wisconsin. Uh, but she, she basically has, has this idea of, of uh, teaching students to love comics first and foremost and love creating them. And I think that you can't do that with high stakes work, like draw a 20 page, realistically <laughs> illustrate it, you know, like that nobody's, you get, you get that task as a writer and you're like, I'm out, I'm done. Uh, you try to create tasks that's going, that are going to make everyone bad in a way. And, and so sh she will create tasks and she writes about this that are, you know, draw Batman in 30 seconds and nobody's going to do it well. You know, even somebody who draws Batman professionally is going to struggle with that. And so it kind of puts everyone on the same level. My, my variation of that in my courses, 
uh, to make everyone or to help everyone become more comfortable is through what I call note card tasks. So a part of my book list for my students is they all have to buy a stack of note cards. And then we'll start every class with, you know, sometimes it's a five minute, sometimes it's a two minute, sometimes it's a one minute drawing task uh, where they'll have to draw something. It could be a skyline, it could be a tree, but it's just a, it's just a way to, to, um, force them to practice and force them to be comfortable with their own voice and and force them to to have fun and most of them really do uh, and I think that through doing tasks like that students are able to see what they can actually accomplish and what what their version of a face looks like or their version of a tree looks like and then work with that uh, on the larger projects in in terms of uh, in terms of the nurses that that we're working through and and I would actually, to maybe to backtrack to the um, the HIV project, I think that's similar to the way that the storyboards work. When we're asking a participant to to draw something on the storyboard, I think while I, I don't think that the conversation is necessarily uh, I don't want to use the word fun, but the act of drawing is something that I th- I can say universally <laughs> we all loved at one point in our lives. Um, we we were all bad at it at one point in our lives, but we all loved it. Like everybody, I could give everyone a crayon and they would they would enjoy doing something with a crayon right now. It might just be like coloring something, but you have fun drawing. And I think that there is a disarming quality to that of like feeling like you're like six or seven again, you know, with a coloring book in front of you. And so I think that the storyboards do that as well. It's a small constrained space. Um, you don't have much time to to worry about drawing something realistically. And in a lot of our storyboards, um, you know, we had pre-drawn material and they might just draw in extra things into the panels. So it wasn't high stakes for for most of the the participants. Um, with the nursing uh, study, the first thing that we actually wound up doing uh, was uh, Dr. Cook uh, gave me the name of a former student who is a nurse and a nursing administrator in uh, Indianapolis. And I, I won't use her name because the the piece that we created hasn't been published yet. And she was initially hesitant about doing it and about putting her experiences out into the world and having them linked to her hospital. But enough time has passed now that, that the piece is, is out uh, or it, w- it will be published soon. But I'll just wait till that is out there so that I'm not the one breaking that news for her. Um, but we communicated uh, you know, over several months, uh, back and forth interviews about her experiences during the pandemic. And I don't, I'm trying to remember when this was. It must have been early 2021. So when I say her experiences in the pandemic, I guess what I mean was like the pandemic was still happening. And so she, the experiences that she was speaking about were incredibly raw. They weren't um, reflective by several years of like, well, remember when this happened? It was like, this happened last week. Um, and she's a nursing administrator, so the experiences were hers, but also the experiences of those working with her and under her, uh, those that she was responsible for. So it was kind of like she was a collection of, of stories uh, and a collection of trauma, really. And and she was, I think, initially, I don't want to say resistant, but skeptical about, about comics. And, um, and I had to kind of look at the experience of the... Uh, of the interview as being my opportunity to disarm someone else who didn't have experience with the medium. And so we took the, we took the comics and, or we took the interviews rather. And, um, 
I tried to form them into stories and then form them into storyboards. And every step along the way, I worked with uh, with this uh, nursing administrator and um, tried to show her what it could look like and what it could become. And in the end, we have a, uh, I think it's about an eight to nine page comic. It's black and white. Um, and it, I, I, I'm pretty proud of, of what it became. And It's incredible. And, yeah, hoping people are, are able to see it. But that kind of, that was sort of our, how do I say this? That was like our not an experiment, a beta test of what this this larger project uh, with with art therapy could be. Uh, you know, if we could work with one person, how could we work in a in a larger group? And and while this project was was just me working with this one one person, um, the I, the hope is that through this this larger art therapy project and, and workshops is that we'll give a lot of people the opportunity to draw for themselves, not just communicate with somebody else who will draw their experiences because the the idea of art therapy isn't just talking but it's also uh, you know writing and drawing as a way of thinking through the through the the events themselves have either of you encountered any initial um, pushback when the idea or the word comic is introduced because I think <clears throat> outside of maybe um, people who study these types of things, you know, the general, I, I'm just guessing here, but the general understanding of comics would be what you think of in the newspaper versus things like Mouse or Persepolis that are very intense um, graphic. Then the introduce, the idea of um, graphic novels gets introduced instead of the, use, the word comic. So I'm curious about those kind of terms and if you received any kind of um, initial pushback when you introduced the idea of comic as art therapy. I I don't I don't remember I I think with with this um, with this nurse that I was working with I think it was more along the lines of um, I mean maybe the same way that someone would would react when you said I want to make a TV show about that or a movie where you're like eh, <laughs> I mean do I want Hollywood coming in and you know like that kind of thing of like I don't know if it can really capture how terrible this is or was or or whatever so I I don't think it was necessarily um, that that skepticism was about the comics medium. But I think that there's a long history of looking down at the comics medium. I think that if you talk to most comic scholars and even most comics creators, they've kind of moved past that to the point where um, they kind of just don't even talk about it. Like they'll, there, there used to be this kind of um, trope in scholarly articles about comics that they all had to start with or have some literature review about like now we all know what people think about comics and and it's the newspapers and it's the superheroes and it would go there would be this like obligatory page about it and then there's this almost now if you read a piece about about uh, some sort of scholarship about comics now there's the like the backlash paragraph to that the reactive paragraph <laughs> about this article will not have uh, an apology <laughs> about co- so I, I do wonder now what's the next trope that's going to come along in five ten years to react to that but but uh, but I would say for for most people who are, are, are serious about this, they kind of they've kind of just now taken this this medium. I don't want to say for granted, but they they recognize um, its power and its potential, and they kind of don't have to make apologies for it anymore. I think in the broader public, um, I don't know. I, I think I think that there is a there is a, a connotation um, that you can change the language of what comics is 
and it's the same thing, but people react differently. If I said an Instagram story about a health-related topic, even if it's a the Instagram story is a, is sequential art and it is a comic, people will react differently. I think in a couple of years, people will probably react differently if I say Instagram story, um, because people already react differently now if I say a Facebook post than they would have five years ago. So I think that our 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 views of these mediums are constantly constantly changing. Um, I'm the graphic narrative editor at the Florida Review. That term was coined at a time where we were, I don't want to say afraid, but kind of afraid to call me the comics editor. And I'm not afraid anymore, but I just also <laughs> don't feel like changing it on the masthead, you know? So I, th- I think that the terms are evolving. Um, I think that the public perception of them, you know, there will always be, there will always be something because so much of comic art is, I mean, is kind of childish looking, like a talking animal or something, and you have to fight through it. But I, I think that you don't have to spend as much time fighting through it as maybe you did 20 years ago, 30 years ago. Yeah, and even in the studies, you know, we were worried about that very question. Would people feel like we were trivializing or asking them to trivialize their experiences by representing them in comic form? And we didn't see a lot of that, but we did see some reaction of, I'm not a writer, I mean, I'm not a drawer, I can't create these things. And, you know, Nathan is very good at making this seem approachable and accessible. So that was helpful. And, you know, there were some people who preferred to use um, the comic storyboards as prompts to then tell their story or write their story. Other people jumped into the drawing. Other people wanted to kind of collaborate with us on the drawing. Almost like an offshoot of just the amount of multimodality that we all incorporate into our lives now. The idea that, you know, nothing is as static as it once was. Like, you know, some people still scoff at TikTok, and I'm one of them sometimes. (laughs) But there's also a lot of really valuable information that you can get through TikTok or Instagram reels or, you know, any of these things that are, I think, you know, the immediate knee-jerk reaction is that of, like, I would think of, like, my parents. Like, oh, really? That's some Instagram video? That can't be legitimate. But... I think those of us that know that multimodality plays such a huge role in the way that we both express ourselves and get information and can disseminate information, I think that might be an offshoot of that. Yeah, and I think it can be a wonderful way for, because I think sometimes, you know, there's the same apprehension about just being a writer. People will say, well, I'm not a writer. I, you know, uh, I can't write my experiences or, or that's just not my thing or whatever. So I think the combination of comics, well, yeah, you, you, there may be a barrier for people saying, I, I can't draw or whatever. You know, I, I thought, Nathan, your, your point was great about it does tap into to the sort of memory we have of, of a time where we would pick up a, a crayon and just do something without, you know, self-critiquing too much or anything like that. So I think the combination of like telling a story and having a different way of telling that story um, is something that, that I think can be really accessible and, uh, and powerful. Um, I wanted to ask a question about uh, when reading about this nursing project, um, I was reading about the creation of these workshops or the workshop, uh, or as mentioned in the article, the prototype workshop uh, as something that I think is, you know, what is meant to come out of this program to be shareable and, and just involve more and more people. So my question is, 
how how did you go from all of this research, all of this you know data, all these experiences to try and create like a, a workshop that could be you know uh, replicated and 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 involve more and more people? Well, it's a messy <laughs> process. I thought you'd say uh, that. <laughs> and a, and a, and a, 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 it's a it's a, a work in process as well. Like uh, I don't. I don't know that we have a mostly finalized workshop right now, um, but it. I think we're still going to be making some revisions to it in the months ahead to have our first major real workshop in probably July-ish. Yeah. Um, so the I think that there there are sort of two there were two things it's like you remember that old commercial with like white bread and wheat bread <laughs> you know it was like white 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 wheat wheat they're like two trains you know and then they smash together it goes white wheat <laughs> yeah so I mean you gotta you gotta look it up but there's sort of two different trains here two different breads uh, if you will and one was uh, the pre-existing react training. Um, which which is put on by UCF Restores, that already exists and it was already there for uh, for first responders and as a part of their training, there are video testimonial or sort of like reenacted video testimonials that participants would uh, sort of interact with. Um, and then on the other hand, there are my own comics workshops and and the sort of things that I do in my class and and um, maybe what you were referring to uh, Nick about a sort of prototype workshop that that I, I put on for my my colleagues um, in, in in nursing and writing and rhetoric and and so we have sort of two different things and and our our project is kind of about merging those things how do we take this pre-existing training which is for first responders not necessarily for nurses Um and how do we take comics workshops and how do we put them together into something that speaks to nurses and that incorporates the best of both worlds? And um, that and that was that's that's like probably about a year long challenge that we had. Like we don't want to lose anything from the current React training. We want to enhance it and augment it and give further opportunities to participants. But the training itself, and we we went through the training as a part of, of as a part of this process. Uh, it's already long. Like it was already a full day. And, and a lot of our discussions have been about length. How do we get this material into the pre-existing structure? What can be cut from the pre-existing structure? You know, how do we, how do we get a, um, a, a nurse to sign up for this to begin with, knowing that it's going to be long? How do we ensure that they're kept active throughout and that this isn't a drag for them? Uh, and and so so yeah so uh, I I'm sure Blake could speak more to to our uh, to our revision process and but I think that that that's the first thing that that we have to understand is that there are there are two different uh, two different workshops and we had to smash them together and then hopefully come away with with something better and and we're very we're very close to that right now yeah I think in addition to incorporating comics into the already existing training, you know, Nathan developed a series of workshops, follow-up workshops after that big long training day to both help nurses think about the power of comics for their own purposes as art therapy, but also to reinforce the training itself. So in this 
multidisciplinary field called graphic medicine, one of the uses of comics is with provider training. And one of the, the uses in that is to help you know, nurses in training, doctors in training, you name it, reflect on and process what they were learning. And so that's what we're doing with some of these follow-up workshops is helping them think about, okay, if I'm going to start implementing these peer support skills and having these hard conversations with my skills who are clearly under mental stress, um, how can I better anticipate that? How can I better practice it? How can I better process what I learned in this workshop toward doing it? I think you're kind of already getting there, but I was curious, what kind of rhetorical frameworks are you trying to expose them to? I don't know if expose is the right word, but to... um, to allow them to approach this rhetorically as opposed to, say, artistically or creatively necessarily, but that that focus more on, you know, the message and the delivery of that. Yeah, so one, one rhetorical concept that rhetoricians who've studied stigma um, and mental health stigma, which is what we're working on with the, the nurses training in part, HIV stigma, other forms of stigma, is this idea of rhetorical disability, that sometimes stigma, and in the case of mental health with nurses, I guess the resistance to being vulnerable and and asking for help. You know, we have this cultural perception of nurses as superheroes, and they are. Mm -hmm. That's a good thing, but at the same time, it prevents them from being vulnerable. So I think... With this idea of rhetorical disability, it's getting at um, how these kinds of stigma can affect both how you might be perceived by other people, but also how you might perceive yourself and your own sense of self-agency and rhetorical agency, your ability to communicate about these things. And so that's one of the, you know, the negative effects of stigma. It shuts that ability down. Um, another term that rhetoricians have used to describe this is um, cacoethos, which means just sort of negative anti-ethos, ethos being sort of one's credibility or character. Um, and so rhetoricians have, have sort of studied how do people reclaim that? How do people um, reclaim their rhetorical agency, their ability to communicate about things that are really difficult and they may need help with? Is that something that, you know, you saw from some of the data collected, some of the experiences shared where, you know, uh, people involved in, and nurses were talking about dealing with this, maybe like public perception of, of their role and their jobs um, and their own like personal experiences? Absolutely. Maybe, I mean, you, you've studied how nurses have already been doing this outside of our study. Yeah. So I, I think if you go to just Instagram and you just start, making up hashtags I mean making up you just typing in combos of words you're going to find a lot of COVID related comics I mean COVID comics I'm sure is a hashtag that's got at least 75,000 but there are two two separate books um, with the title of COVID Chronicles by different publishers that are I mean, pretty much the same thing like they're they are comics uh, with and about nurses during the pandemic and, and, and some sort of civilians as, as well. So um, the materials is, is out there. And I feel like when, when the pandemic hit, I don't want to sound crass about this, but I, 
you know, some of my earliest thoughts were like, there's going to be a lot of a lot of comics um, written during this time. Uh, I was already at that time in my uh, first year writing classes showing examples of uh, like Instagram posts for emergency preparedness during hurricanes. And I was like, that's going to be a big thing during COVID as well. Like very illustrated looks at, you know, what you should do here, how to wash hands, you know, all of this, it was, it was everywhere. And it continued through, um, through the pandemic itself uh, and, and the stories um, that are published are, are pretty extensive. Uh, I think what what Blake is is referring to also was that there were at least initially, and I think Megan, you you referred to the the the, the moments in New York where people are cheering on the first responders and cheering on the medical staffs, and and that I, I think everybody remembers that moment in time where we all kind of I don't want to say deified, but we all were like trying to prop up. Um, healthcare workers uh, during an incredibly tough time. And, and one of the ways that we did this, um, Marvel Comics actually published this, uh, I think it's called Vital Signs. It was a, it was a, a comic and the cover, you, I mean, you just, you can Google this. Uh, I know this is not a visual medium that we're talking <laughs> on right now, but Google Marvel Comics Vital Signs and you'll see exactly what Blake is talking about where it's well-meaning, but there are these nurses that look like superheroes and they might even be like incredibly well muscled. Like Marvel artists are not good at drawing anything but well muscled people. <laughs> um, and, and, and like you look at that and for a nurse, I, I would think that for like a day or two, you have that and you're like, well, that's cool. That's nice. They think, they think that of me. But then a few days later when you're struggling, you're like, I was about to swear, but, uh, you're like I, I don't I don't like that. That's my that's my G-rated version. I don't like that anymore because I'm going through something, and and every day I have to look like like that. And, and um, some of my favorite days in teaching are the days when I'm sick and I can go in. and I'm just like, hey, all right, we're not going to do a whole lot today. <laughs> like you know, I could just I could just like kind of let it let it out. You know, like every other day you have to put on the mask, you have to put on the armor. But that day, I can be like, I just don't. You guys are gonna have to talk today, whatever. <laughs> um, and I think that I think that like I'm sure that that nurses and first responders had that that feeling as well. Like the more you tell me how awesome I am, like I'm getting sicker and sicker and sicker of having to 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 pretend. And so I'd say that there's there's a lot of work that's out there already that depicts that kind of that sort of fragility. Um, in, in, in mental health. Um, and yeah, and we're hoping that, that that's, I, I think that things might have changed a little bit by now since we have a little bit more distance. So I think if we, if we were putting on the workshops in 2021, we would get a lot more of, of that mindset. I'm curious to see where it goes in, um, in 2023 and 2024, what the mindset is and and how maybe the more reflective nature of of the the pieces and and even the conversations that that we have what that's going to look like and to add a couple examples from the HIV study you know Nathan had this great idea to just give our participants a blank panel and say draw what stigma looks like and feels like to you didn't, as a didn't way that to define actually it. come from one of the participants though it might have yeah 
Um, I mean, we 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 put it into to words, but I think it was one of one of them that was drawing something and somehow anyway, but messy again. Yeah. So a couple of examples of what they drew. One drew as the provider was asking them stigmatizing questions or whatever was happening, like melting into a puddle. So, and another participant drew this this figure of being in this valley with these big boulders coming down on both sides. And at the bottom of the valley were these broken stones that said happiness and self-love. So you can see how powerful <laughs> this medium can be at conveying that, that loss of sense of self-efficacy, rhetorical agency, ability to communicate what they need and who they are to a provider. Well, I don't think that necessarily um, this is the only reason, but I think this is a big part of this um, this grant and this work that you've done. Uh, our department is now going to be having a certificate in medical writing and rhetoric. And I, I mean, I, I applaud you for doing this and helping us. I'm, I'm, like I said, I think it's a collaborative thing, but I think your work has been a, a large part of that. And <clears throat> for the first time, I think this coming spring, you're teaching uh, graphic medicine? This fall, this actually, fall. yeah. Okay. So twenty fall of 2023, yes. Time has gone. All mm -hmm. kinds of elastic. It is a special topics course. It's uh, ENC 3482. Um, talk to us a little bit how, what is that class going to look and function like versus I, what you did for the so I research? So I think... I, I I could be wrong, but so the course has been permanently approved. So it's oh, it's, it's, a, it's a real part of the curriculum. Okay. Um, but I I don't know if we're still waiting on the course number. So that might be uh, one of the reasons. So for, put an asterisk next yeah, to the. Um, I'll go back in and edit the right numbers. <laughs> no, it's fine. <laughs> if if you're a student listening to this, you've made it this far. You can <laughs> you can easily do the whole my UCF thing and search my last Contact name and find your it. Your academic <laughs> advisor. Yeah, there you go. <laughs> Um, but yeah, so graphic medicine this fall, uh, it's, a, I think, a pretty cool book list. We, we also have it structured that we will be teaching it in spring of 2025 as a um, team talk course, myself and uh, Krista Cook in, in nursing, and we'll be doing that through the Honors College. So that will be even more special, I think. But yeah, I'm looking forward to bringing in um, a number of, of, of guest speakers, uh, graphic novelists. I, I just I want it to be a really special course to to see how how uh, different writers and artists have 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 uh, put their stamp on on graphic medicine. We'll be reading scholarship, but we'll also be drawing pictures in the course too. And I will have a day where I bring in crayons. Thinking about the certificate more broadly, you know, Nathan has helped us teaching some of the other courses in the certificate, like writing about health and medicine, which I sometimes teach. Think about how to incorporate comics in those courses, too, even though that might not be the primary focus. It's an exciting thread, um, and I think you'll see that in another course I'll plug that um, Dr. Stephanie Wheeler developed called Disability Rhetorics. I took that course with her as a grad student. Fantastic. Yes, it was wonderful. I think she's teaching it undergrad this coming yes. academic year. Um, but so to me, I still am wrapping my mind around, you mentioned like the idea of how much graphic interface is involved in medical professions of a day-to-day -day basis. Like you mentioned hand washing, like a graphic for how to wash your hands. 
So is this going to be a combination of considering all the ways that graphics are involved in medicine, or is it going to be more comic focused or? Yeah. So, well, so um, for any listeners who, who uh, might not have the years and years of, <laughs> of, of academic focus in comics, I should just say when we talk about comics, we're really just talking about sequential art. So, even though the word comics is used and that brings to mind things like newspapers or that brings to mind things like comic books or even graphic novels, really sequential art could just be two images side by side. Or it could be one image w- that is meant to be read as a, a story. Like um, I, my, my go-to example would be something like uh, a Where's Waldo page. Like I could look at that as being comics, not because it has multiple panels, but because there are stories being told as you move from left to right across the page and back again. Um, it's it, there, there is a sequence to it, and there are multiple things happening. Um, all that to say, though, I, I think I used the example earlier of like Instagram stories or Instagram postings, and and so we'll definitely look at um, graphic public health in the course and how uh, during the pandemic and, and during other pu- public health uh, crises, emergencies, um, comics or sequential art has been used in social media. Uh, like my example for hurricanes and emergency preparedness, if you've ever moved through uh, a posting on Instagram that's multiple images with text in those images, I mean, that that's the kind of thing that we'll be looking at. How do you communicate those sort of tough health-related concepts through sequential art, whether it's a booklet, whether that's an Instagram post with multiple images, um, or or whether that's something just uh, something else completely online. I, I we'll also look at um, public uh, public art displays too as being examples of sequential art. Um, so really, the possibilities uh, are endless. And in this field called graphic medicine, we're already seeing, you know, as I mentioned before, comics being used in provider training, not just for reflection, but skill building, like empathy with, with patients. It's being used for patient and caregiver testimonials and you know, broader public education around those experiences being used to guide clinical practice. So there's a comic called um, Working with Trauma or something like that. Looking at trauma. Looking yeah. at trauma. And um, it's it comics are being used for patient instructions and patient education as well. I immediately thought of the patient instructions yeah. and education because I know there is an issue with breakdown in communication based on language or cultural yes. mores that um, is a big issue. But where suddenly when you were talking at the at the start about how rhetoric encompasses the symbols that we're using for discussion, that that would be a, a real big part of that. Well, we are closing in our time for this episode, so I just wanted to, to ask um, if there if there's anything you want to talk about or mention that's on the horizon. Uh, Nate, you were just talking about your, your course that's coming up, but um, perhaps what are the next steps for, for this particular uh, nursing project that you've been doing in workshops uh, or anything that you want to mention that you're uh, excited about that's, that's coming up for you both? Yeah, this makes me wish we had a dedicated website for the project so yeah. <laughs> so so we could point listeners somewhere and they could learn more and, and see our progress we don't have that yet but we'll uh i don't know we'll start an instagram page uh, in july we'll just say uh i don't know what it's going to be i wish i could give you the the uh the tag but that that might be uh useful uh, at some point but um yeah we're just full steam ahead on the on the full day workshops and 
excited to see um, where they go, the effect they have, and then what sort of uh, materials produced for sure. Yeah, I think with the HIV workshop, um, it's going to be exciting to see that getting implemented in different forms of provider training. We already have we already have partnerships with the Florida Department of Health and other entities to do that. And I think one next step with that would be to start thinking about how stigma works in faith-based institutions. Um, with the nurses training, um, as Nick mentioned before, after we collect data and we refine what that looks like, we can start thinking about how to make that scalable through maybe online modules and other forms of remote engagement. Um, personally, I'm you know Nathan has inspired me to combine my work on that journal you mentioned, Rhetoric of Health and Medicine, and you know work in that area with graphic medicine and comics. And so I'm going to be co-editing a, a digital column for that journal with a colleague at West Virginia, Catherine Gouge. And Nathan, do you want to tell them about, you know, your current long project with comics? Well, yeah. So it's, uh, again, I wish I had something to point uh, listeners to, but you could always follow me on my Instagram at the real Nathan Hollick. Checkmark certified. (laughs) My my Twitter is at the fake Nathan Hollick. So, um, yeah, just I wanted to have a contrast. Yeah, I've been working for about a year on a series of comics about um, parenting a son with with, uh, pretty severe ADHD and the search for a diagnosis and what that looked like, uh, uh, and the search for medication and and how how to deal with with the issues in someone who can't communicate yet. Um, I think there are a lot of stories now about ADHD in high school and college. There's a lot of stories about adults discovering that they have ADHD. And there are a lot of memoirs about ADHD and what someone's gone through. But I wanted to to tell the experience from the perspective of a parent who has no idea what's happening. And I think for a lot of parents, when they have a child, they know they don't have any idea of what's happening with anything, right? I I had both the fortune and misfortune of having three children. So I had, I had a bit. Lots of data points there. Let's go ahead and back that up and, and cross out the misfortune part. Um, just in case they hear this someday. But, uh, uh, but, but I was, I had a basis of comparison and, you know, my son with ADHD has a twin. So, so we could easily, there's always, you're putting two people together. I'm like, there's something different going on here. Um, and, and, and so we're, we're, we're able to, 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 to constantly figure, to constantly look at that and say that, that something is something is wrong, but we can't put our finger on it. And um, the, the tentative title of what I'm working on is just something is wrong, comma nothing is wrong, like the the sort of internal battles you have and, and you have with your spouse or your partner, um, and even the use of the word wrong is wrong, right? Like there's nothing wrong, but but something's wrong. How do we say this, and how do we identify it in somebody who's five, six, seven years old, and you don't want to derail education, and you don't want to use medication. There's a lot that goes into to it, but you want that person to su- succeed. And when your son is um, in danger of not making it through kindergarten because he lays on the floor and stabs holes in his papers and won't, you know, it's, well, you got to do something. You can't just keep saying there's, quote, nothing wrong. So uh, anyway, so that's the that's the piece that um that I'm working on. I'm trying to create short installments that hopefully I can put online. I'm still kind of looking for venues uh, at this point, but but hopefully also ultimately 
collect into into something larger and that can speak to to other parents who who are uh, working through these issues. That comic's going to do a lot of good in the world. Yeah, I think there's definitely an audience for it. I feel like the same way that we've begun to re reexamine and redefine autism mm-hmm. and and the spectrum and and yeah. how it impacts people at every age. I think there's a similar trend now happening with ADHD and ADD that it's just a little more um I think it's a more more common than we ever realized. All mm-hmm. those things we wrote off as quirks in people years ago are now like, oh no, there's actually a reason for that. And then not to um, completely undermine that because that's really fantastic. And as a parent, I identify with that. You're also teaching, um, Blake, you're teaching rhetoric and fantasy football this fall. Is that right? Yeah. So that came out of um, a version of our rhetoric and popular culture course that has rotating topics related to popular culture. So been playing fantasy football for a long time. <laughs> Um, you know, I have a church league that I run. Um, and so a few years back, I thought, well, why don't I try this? And we can get in leagues and we can play. And we had national, you know, analysts Skype into our class and wow. offer my students internships and crazy things happen. But, um, you know, the way we connect it to writing is first we, we think about, well, how do you learn how to participate and argue in a new discourse community, or even a familiar discourse community. How do you learn how to make better arguments about, in this case, who to draft, who to trade, who to start that week? Um, and so that's that's one transferable nugget. And I think the other one is around this idea of communities of practice. How do people new at something learn how to learn it better? And so um, we get in groups and we we share resources. Um, and we share struggles and challenges, and then we think about, well, how, how can that translate if I'm new at a job or I'm new in a major or I'm mm. new at something else? Well, it's always so inspiring getting to speak with our colleagues and their incredible ideas and their application and what they're doing in the world. So thank you so much for taking the time to share that with us today. Well, your podcast is inspiring. Thank you. Oh, thank yeah, you. Thank you for having us, definitely. Yeah, thanks for being here. Thanks for listening, everybody.